Leviticus chapter 8. It's not getting old being able to say, turn to Leviticus. Uh, We started this series a couple weeks ago. Uh, This book of the Old Testament that many times people skip over or uh, ignore or just say, thank God it's there, but I have no idea what it's talking about. Uh, I mentioned, I think last week, I kind of seeing how other churches who have talked about Leviticus, have framed it. Uh, I've seen different series titles of You Lost Me in Leviticus, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, This isn't a book, though, to skip over. This isn't a book to just ignore. This isn't a book that is no longer relevant for us because of what's happened in the New Testament. This book is important as part of God's word and as something as believers we need to understand and know how to implement because it talks about what does it mean to be the people of God and um, to be loved by God, to be guided by him, and to be represent him to the world around us. And so even though we're not necessarily ordering our lives specifically by this law, the way that the Old Testament people did, because of the New Testament, this is still God's character. It's still God's heart. It's still God guiding his people. And we, that's still us. And so we need to learn from this book. And so there's so much in this book. We're not able to go through all of the chapters over the next couple months. We're taking it more section by section. And so last week we were in the first section just talking about all these different sacrifices and how God wants us to bring our gifts to him so that we can be in relationship with him, that he makes it possible for us to be in community with him. He makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be clean so that we can be in his presence. God wants to be with us. That's really what that's about what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to move into the next section, which talks about some people with some very specific roles. Um, Before we get into that, let's pray and just ask God to speak to our hearts through this just powerful book. God, again, I just thank you so much for this church. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for how you're forming and fashioning this place and drawing people together, how friendships are getting made. God, how you carry us, how you hold us, how you celebrate with us. God, I thank you for the people that got baptized last weekend and just the five people that came and and just acknowledged their commitment and life with you. God, we praise you for that. We praise you for what you're doing in this church. And God, we pray you continue. Pray that you would, in this message now, that you would speak, that you would let us see who we are as your children, that you would guide us in how to live for you, that we would see more of your heart and your character toward us, God. God, I pray that you would just speak to us in a powerful way, that, Spirit, you would move in this room, that you would move through me, that you would be the one speaking, and give us ears to hear. In your name we pray, amen. So there are a couple different strikes going on in the country. I'm sure you've heard of these. One, the Writers Guild has been striking since May and so shut down all Hollywood productions. Um, And then the auto workers began striking about a week ago. And so all car prices are starting to rocket and everything that's really happening with them. Um, Such work shortages can go on and on and on. I mean, the Writers Guild has been going on since May. And so these things continue and tensions build and it gets to a point that it seems like the two parties are never going to come into an agreement and they're never going to find peace. This isn't going to work out. It's interesting to me that when these standoffs happen and they start getting super intense or seem to have no hope of finally coming together, then various notable people will step in and offer to help. 
I mean, just this uh, last week, I saw that the president offered to go and meet with the auto workers and companies, and the governor of California has offered to step in and meet with the riders and producers. The idea of, in these situations and others like them, mediators, significant people who are outsides, come and step in and help the parties navigate the issues, find solutions, and come to some type of an agreement. This idea of mediators coming in to stand between two different groups. Have you ever needed someone to step in between you and another person? Maybe there was tension there. Maybe there was misunderstanding. Maybe there was disagreement, and you weren't able to figure it out. You weren't seeing eye to eye, and you needed somebody else to come and mediate between the two of you. You needed an outside voice of reason to help you figure things out. Or maybe you felt like you couldn't navigate it on your own. You just needed somebody to help you navigate the issues and talk through things. Or maybe you've played that part as mediator for someone else. This next section of Leviticus that we're going to be looking at, Leviticus 8 through 10, is about God's mediators, the Old Testament priests. It says at the beginning of Leviticus 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. What we're going to see in Leviticus 8 is that Aaron and his sons are going to become the first priests of Israel, Aaron being the high priest of Israel. Now, when you hear that, don't think the Pope or a Catholic priest or guy with a black and like the white collar. Not that that's bad or anything, it just says that we don't want to superimpose natural correlations that we might think of when we hear hear certain words, that's not what's happening here. And so we want to make sure we're understanding it within the right context. But in what we see here in in Leviticus 8 is that the priests served as intermediaries between the people and God, representing God to the people and representing the people to God, acting as mediaries between them. Now, I used the whole strike, riders killed, auto workers thing at the beginning, but you need to make some really important clarifications of how different Israel and God is compared to the auto workers and their companies and the riders guild and their companies. First really big difference. Today, both people entities have demands. They have issues. Both are coming to the table with grievances or issues or problems of how they want it to seem to be done. That is not so with God and humanity. Kenneth Matthews says this, the chief role of the priestly mediation was not between two agreed persons, but with only one offended party. God alone had the right to be offended by the disobedience of his people Israel. God was faithful to his people, but they were not loyal to him. The people had no legitimate grievance to bring against their God. Their sin was it went against a holy God. So the mediators of Israel, the mediators help Israel navigate being able to deal with their sin and to be purified so that they can come into the presence of God. So that's a major difference. This isn't God and Israel both coming at each other. Israel's the one with the problem. They're the ones who have failed. They're the ones with disobedience. They're the ones who need help. 
And God is wanting them to have that help. He's making it possible. See, he's providing the mediators so that they can be, work this out. The second big thing to clarify and how this is different than our strikes and things we're familiar with today is that in our strikes, there's a standoff between two people and they both need help. Like I said, between humanity and God, God is not the one who needs help. He is holy. He is perfect. He's done no wrong. Humanity is the one who's rebelled. Even Aaron, Aaron, the one who's going to be made a priest, he's part of this, what we're going to see. He's part of the issue here. And so he even needs help. That's why this chapter that we're looking at is so powerful, is that God would be within his rights to leave them in the consequences of their wrongs. But he wants them to be forgiven, restored, to be with them. He makes this possible. He's the one setting this up. We cannot overemphasize this enough as we go through Leviticus. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you. Not because of anything that we do, we're impressive or anything like that. God has his heart toward us. He loves you. He cares for you. God wants to be with you. And we see him throughout Leviticus making it happen for these broken, sinful people to be forgiven, purified, restored, and able to come back to him. He's providing a way for ransom owed for the people's sin. He's making it possible for them to be purified from the stain of sin so that they can be in his presence and the mediators of those that he has selected to make it possible. So Leviticus 8 is the ceremony that took place which made Aaron and his sons priests. Before this chapter, they weren't. But here there are. This is a huge, huge defining moment in Israel's history where Aaron and the priests are, the priests are inducted and how people will re relate with God changes. We talk about how, what does Leviticus tell us about the priest? Well, before we ask that question, what does Leviticus tell us about the priest? We have to ask a different question. Why in the world would these Old Testament priests have anything to do with us? Why in the world go through this, especially this chapter? That's not only an important question to ask, it's probably the most important question to ask. Because the reality of what we're going to see is their job is my and your jobs. Their job is our job. What, is, what does it say in 1 Peter in the New Testament? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What we're going to see is that in many ways, what God was calling these priests to do, he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be as they were. And so as we look at what these priests did, we need to ask, how are we to carry that on? And the first thing we're going to see is this, is that we are called to be God's representatives. We are called to be God's representatives. Look at Leviticus 8 uh, verse 6. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed, and washed them with water. He put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe 
and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastplate on him. And in the breastplate, he put the urim and the thurim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the saying goes, the clothes make a man, and that definitely fits here. These are some really significant clothes that Aaron and his sons are being, uh, being put on them within their roles as priests. You're not going to find these at the mall, I guarantee it. Um, these are very specific and very important with religious purposes. Aaron's is even more elaborate and involved because of his role as high priest. These pieces all hold a high religious purpose to help the community discern God's will, to receive God's wisdom, to God's guidance for them. We're not going to go into all the little details of every one, unfortunately, but that's the reality is that they're helping the people discern God's will, to know of his presence, and to receive his wisdom and guidance. It's not the clothes themselves are magic or anything. The clothes signify that God is working through these people to engage the community and guide them. Again, quoting from this uh, scholar, Kenneth Matthews, the brightly colored, dazzling garb of the high priest communicated the holiness and majesty of God. It was a constant reminder of the distinctive role that the priest was called upon to fulfill on behalf of the nation. By the mediator's vestments, Aaron symbolically brought the people into the presence of God each time he performed the rites of sacrifice. So these individuals, these people, they had a specific role to help the people be brought into the presence of God. If you weren't here with us last week, I showed this picture of the tabernacle, this area where sacrifices were made and offerings were given, and this courtyard where different people could be, but then this smaller tent had the holy place and the holy of holies, and only the priests could go in the holy place, only the high priests could go into the holy of holies. And the idea of common people coming into the presence of a holy God just isn't possible because of our sin, because of our impurities, because of the, the reality of the fall. And so they come and they offer sacrifices to pay the ransom of sin, to be purified of that, so they could be in the presence of God. So what the mediators are doing is that they're walking back and forth, if you will, the common spot and the holy spot to be able to bring the people into the presence of God and the presence of God to the people. They're helping make that possible. Why is that so important? Because the New Testament teaches us two really important things. One, we no longer need someone in that role to bring us into the presence of God. We don't need that type of mediator anymore because of what, who Jesus is. Jesus is our mediator. So we don't have to go to a priest any longer. It says in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus, who died on the cross in our place, has made it possible to where we can go and the, into the presence of God. Our sin is paid for. We are purified, made white as snow. 
we are able to be in the presence of God because of who Jesus is. We no longer need that priestly mediator. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for what he did for us. We can be with the God who wants to be with us because of Jesus. Some of you picked up, that was the amen moment. Like that was the moment that should have been, because the, you know what? Here's the thing. May we never get so busy and so tired and so broken or so distracted or whatever that when we hear that Jesus made it possible for us to be children of God and be in the presence of God, that has to always move us. May we never forget the fact that Jesus has made it possible for us to be with the God who wants to be with us. That should mean something to us. We should react to that. God wants to be with you. The reason why I say this, this first point, that we are called to be God's representatives is remember what Peter said, we're a, we are a priesthood. We are acting that role. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's passages like this and others in the Bible that talk about us being God's ambassadors, those who, salt and light, going and being his representatives in the world. Why? Because now it's our job to take the presence of God to those who don't have him. That idea of if the common can't mix with the holy, but God has redeemed us and made us holy, how does God get his message to people who don't know him yet? Through us. We are those mediators now. We are those ones who are to go to people and say, God wants to be with you. And know I know that because he wants to be with me. God wants to give you life. And you know why I know that? Because he gave me life. God wants to make his appeal to people for what he has for them through you and I. And he has no plan B. You are called to share that which God has given you. We are called to be his ambassadors. Know that Jesus makes it possible for you to come to God and he wants you to, to tell everyone you know that they can come to God also. That's the first thing. We are called to be God's representatives. Another big important thing that we see about these priests and what that means for us is this, is that we are transformed by grace and also called to live in it. We are transformed by grace and called to live in grace. This next section from verses 10 to 21, pretty a lot of details in here, but I want to focus in on a couple that are really significant. Look at verse 10 first. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. That's our key word in these few verses. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him 
to consecrate him. You see that being repeated. That means it's really important. Same thing happens to Aaron's sons. They're anointed. They're they're consecrated. Moses sacrifices a bull for a sin offering. It says in verse 14, Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. We see Moses leading these different rituals in this section, but we see this word consecrating Aaron and his sons, consecrating the area mentioned time and time again. What we see here is Moses just carrying out what God told him a few chapters back in Exodus. In Exodus 29, it says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And what God told Moses to do in Exodus 29, he's doing here in Leviticus 8. To consecrate something means to declare that something is holy. It is holy. It is set apart. It has been transferred from a state of commonality, of brokenness, of sin, of defiled. It has been transferred from all of that to a state of holiness, of restored, of ransom paid, of cleansed. It's been transformed from the common, sinful, defiled, transformed to the holy, forgiven, and clean. That's the idea of consecrated. They, these were common clothes and pieces of religious equipment, but now they are transformed, consecrated into something holy. This was a common place but now it's transformed into a holy place. These are common people, but now they're transformed into a holy people. And when you think of Aaron's story, this is amazing. Because Aaron screwed up big time. I mean, if there was anybody in Israel who was the dumbest failure in all of Israel... And I'm just being objectively true in saying that. It's Aaron. You know why? If we look back at Exodus 32, Moses has gone up to the mountain to commune with God. And the people of Israel were impatiently waiting because Moses is taking forever. And they can't wait anymore. And they're tired of waiting. And Aaron, and they told Aaron to make them a god, small g an idol that they could see and touch. And they gave this golden calf that Aaron made credit for everything that God had done. This was the low, 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 low point of Israel's history after the Exodus. It says in Exodus 32, 4, Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are, and, and, then, and they said, these are your gods, or Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Of all the people that should have told the Israel, no, this is wrong, no, keep waiting, the one who saw and was there firsthand for everything was Aaron. And he went along with it. And not only did he quietly just go along with it, blending into the crowd, he led it. He made the idol. He orchestrated. He made this possible for them to turn and worship that which God is just telling them not to do. 
Aaron led them in this sin, guided them in this horrible act of rebellion. If anyone deserved to be kicked out of the community, it was Aaron. And here he is in Leviticus 8, being set apart, being made holy. In essence, being told by God, before you were leading these people in sin, and now I want you to lead them in holiness. If Aaron isn't a testimony to God's grace, I don't know what is. Because that's the reality. God's grace is forgiving. He restores. He takes somebody with Aaron's story and says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to have you do this. God's grace saves us, transforms us, and gives us life. And just like it was available for Aaron, it's available for you and I. It says in Romans 3, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Christ, Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We are all Aaron. And it's because of God's grace we are forgiven and we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. We didn't earn it. We didn't do better. We didn't fix ourselves up. We're not as bad as the next person who cares what your parents believe. There's nothing we can do to boast. It's everything about him. We can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So no one, none of us can boast about it. And 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. That, that should be one of the verses we each memorize. That is the verse we need to be reminded of time and time again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, like me. We again, Jesus came to save sinners. That's you and that's me. The things that we see broken in this world, causing pain in this world, causing damage in this world, are the result of sin. We see it in our own lives, we see it in others. And it doesn't obviously, we can't fix it. And obviously, it's not getting better. It's only in Jesus that we are forgiven. It's only in Jesus the sin issue is dealt with. It's only in Jesus that we have the grace that we desire and need. We just have to receive that gift. As it is with Aaron, so it is with us. We don't fix ourselves. We don't earn our way into his good graces. Penance is needed, but Jesus did that. Jesus paid the ransom for our sin. Jesus made it possible for us to be with God. He died for us to save sinners. He extends his grace to you and I, to everyone, and says, I have this gift for you. Jesus loves you, and he wants you to receive that gift of life. We are called, we are transformed by grace, and we are called to live in it. He saves you by grace, and we are to live in his grace. That leads to the, the last thing. 
We are called to live completely surrendered to the Lord. We're called to live completely surrendered to the Lord. Now, again, like this is going to be my refrain for the next two months. There's so many details in here, but we have to focus on a few of them. And so I want to focus in this last section of chapter 8 on the weirdest part of chapter 8. Because we're not going to ignore the weird and gross parts. As we go through Leviticus, we're going to focus in on them. And Leviticus 8 has a weird part. It says in verse 22, Then Moses presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed, he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood, and here's the weird part, put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ear, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And then Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar." It's kind of weird, right? Can we, can, we not, can we agree with that? Like, that's kind of weird. Um, hey, everybody, we want to know if you love Jesus. Can I put this blood on? You know, that's, that's weird, right? So why in the world would he have him do this? Again, we see Moses presents this ram offering, the significance of a ram for ordination for, for Aaron and his sons. They, they put their hands on it to identify it, to show that this is them, representing them. Scholar Samuel Ballantyne, he says the ram offering symbolizes the priest's total commitment to the holy purposes for which they were being ordained. The significance of the ram, their total commitment. There's another story in the Old Testament in Genesis where Abraham is called to go and sacrifice his only son. And he goes through and he does it. He's almost at the point, ready to plunge the knife down and give the most precious, of his, uh, precious thing in his heart to the Lord. And God says, stop. And what's in the thicket but a ram? Something that shows complete obedience. And so what what does Moses do? But he places this blood from this ram, which signifies that, on the extremities of their body. The symbolism of that is it's all of them. All of them. All that they are. Not just a part. All of them is committed to the Lord. The idea of these parts of the body and the something with the right side signifies all of this person is committed to God. All of this person is God's. It shows that Aaron was ordained as God's leader. It shows complete and total commitment. All of him is dedicated to the Lord. Not just part of him, not just a little bit of his time, All that he is, all the time that every breath that he breathes is dedicated to the Lord. And the reality is is that you and I are called to that same life. This life of being his representatives, this life of of grace, we are called to that in everything that we are, in every breath that we breathe. We are called to that same type of surrender and obedience. It says in Luke 14, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. It says in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with everything that you are. In Philippians, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I can count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord. 
Now, that's not saying go, the, the application of that is not go and sell every single thing you have and just walk the country as a hermit. It's not what that's saying. But what is it saying is that the most, your single identifying point of reference of who you are is the Lord. He is everything. He, God doesn't want just a part of our lives. He wants our lives. He wants everything about you. You, you, every breath that you breathe, so how you work, how you play, how you interact, how you talk, how you engage people, how you vote, how you manage your money, everything should be a holy act because everything we do is an act of somebody made holy by a God who wants to be with us. There is nothing that we do, there is no part of our lives that God doesn't want surrendered to him. Jesus must be our main thing and our everything. He must be Lord of our lives. This is what it means when Romans says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The acknowledgement of the cross and that this penalty was paid for you and I, that because of his death that we have forgiveness of sins. But not just acknowledging that truth, saying he's Lord of my life. He's my everything. I'm living for him. He's my all. He is the one that defines how I do everything else. There isn't anything else that defines how I interact with him. Because unfortunately, that's what happens so often in our world today. We allow our ideas of relationships or finances or politics or some type of other thing in our world to dictate how we talk about God and live for God. And that's backwards. Who we are as people who follow Jesus is everything of who we are. And that should define everything that we do. So to say he is Lord of my life is to say he is my everything. And when I acknowledge his death and believe the truth of that and what it means and say he is Lord of my life, that's when you are transformed by grace into a new person, his child, redeemed and saved and brought into the presence of God. Baptism is important for the same reason that the blood on the earlobe, thumb, and the big toe was. Not, I'm not equating the two, but I'm saying there's a similarity there that in the sense that when the people saw the blood being put down, they knew that's God's guy. They knew publicly, because remember, everybody's watching this. Aaron is God's guy. This is his spot, the role. This is what God's called him to. And everything about him is for the Lord in this role. When somebody is baptized, what are they doing? Everything about me is Jesus. He is Lord of my life. We had five people baptized last week, and I asked all of them the same question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Because that's what being baptized is, is proclaiming that. So I just want, again, clearing it up. We're never going to put blood on your ears or your thumbs or your toes. No one, anybody ever think that? But if you're somebody who is following Jesus, you need to be baptized. Because it isn't a private thing. It's everything. I'm not telling introverts to become extroverts or anything like that. I'm telling us we have to be obedient to what he says. We have to let people know that we follow Jesus. And that's what baptism is. And so for some of you, when you hear this idea of God calling us to obedience in life and what he's offering us, some of you need to receive that. You need to be transformed by the grace of God. 
I've been doing this myself. I've been relying on good works. I have my parents. But you have all, you've been looking to something else other than Jesus. And you need to look to him. He died for me. He saved sinners, of which I am one. God, forgive me. You are Lord of my life. You, that needs to happen in who you are. And if you have done that, then you need to live that. Every minute, you need to get baptized and let it be known. You need to get, think through everything of who you are and say, how do I live Jesus in this? And you're going to mess up as much as I mess up, and we're all going to screw up, and God's grace is still there and still sufficient to forgive us and draw us back to himself and keep on going. You are called, I am called to a life completely surrendered to the Lord. Not just this casual existence, not every once in a while, not for an hour on Sunday. God is calling you to surrender. And have you surrendered to him? We're going to close with communion today. I'm going to ask the ushers that they can begin uh, passing communion out. If you've uh, never taken communion with us, uh, just give you a couple instructions while they begin getting it ready. And as the worship team comes up, uh, they're going to pass around two trays. One's going to have bread with it. The other one is going to have some juice. Just take one of each and hold them. We'll all take communion together in a moment. Uh, as the bread tray comes along, there's a smaller thing in there that has gluten-free bread in it. So if you need that, uh, take that. If you don't need it, then just let, then get the other kind. While they're passing that out, Leviticus 8 ends with, And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Now, we're going to see in another chapter that they're, they're already going to mess up. But, and mess ups have consequences. But God's grace is there and, the, and things keep moving forward. But we see here in this moment the fact that the priests have been established. The people can come into the presence of God these people did what God called them to, and the blessings are huge. Gordon Wenham says, Israel could see in the glorious figure of the high priest the personal embodiment of all that the nation ought to be, both individually and corporately. In a similar way, the Christian is called to look at Christ and imitate his deeds and attitudes. That's why it says in Colossians, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. We don't, we don't have these priests as mediators. We have Jesus as our mediator. That's why when we think about church and humans, humanity is going to hurt you. It's just a truth. And that means that people in my position are going to be stupid sometimes because we're as broken as you are. And I'm not justifying anything that any of you have experienced or anything stupid that I've done. But church hurt is real and people get wounded and people get hurt. And I get so angry when I hear about it because I know what it does to people and how people turn away from church and turn away from things because of what happens in those moments. And if that's you and you've experienced that, I am so sorry that you interacted with somebody that was not emulating the reality of Christ. But all I can tell you is please look to Jesus and don't abandon him because somebody was acting stupid. Don't reject God and what he has planned and what he has commanded because somebody was disobedient to it. Again, I'm not minimizing any of that, but I'm asking you to see God and his plan and his plan for the church and to be a part of that.
as we think about the reality of Jesus's ransom paid for us, his blood shed for us, as we hold this bread representing God's broken body, as we hold this juice representing his shed blood for us, we always take a moment just to be quiet and prayerful before the Lord. And maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you need to process something you've heard in the message. Maybe you just want to be quiet and hear from him, but I'm just going to give you a minute to be quiet before the Lord and prepare your hearts, and then we'll receive communion together. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would hear us. I thank you, Jesus, that you make this possible and that we can commune with you. And so let us hear from you now. Let's just be quiet before him, and then we'll receive communion together.